You know when you read something and it's so, I don't know, I don't know what the word is. It's so shocking that you have to read the passage again over and over again. And you're like, no, I can't wrap my head around how obscene this is. <laughs> I hope you're ready for today's sordid tale. As I read some passages from Radiana or Excitable Tales. Mm. Oh my. Are you ready? <laughs> Tis the season. I hope you're ready to spend a naughty holiday season together. You won't need your hot beverage or a crackling fire to keep you warm. No, no, no. This holiday season, I'll be keeping you warm with all sorts of lustful, carnal, dare I say, obscene tales from the masters of smut. Grab your favorite ardent spirit. Ardent spirit? Aquavitae, grog, hooch, alcohol, my love. Get cozy and let your mind wander as you listen to me read indecent and downright lewd passages from selected Victorian erotica. Listener's discretion is strongly advised, as I'll be reading sexually explicit material. You have been warned. Hey, my loves, and welcome to Beauty Unlocks Drunk and Smutty Christmas. I want to know what your poison of choice is for this evening. I'm sitting here with my pomegranate spritz, and I'm getting ready to read to you the next sordid and downright obscene tale. Get cozy and listen to a few select passages I chose from Radiana or Excitable Tales. I'm not sure how dry your panties are going to be after this one, so buckle up. And remember, listener's discretion is strongly advised. So before jumping into Randiana or Excitable Tales, I wanted to say that it was anonymously written, although the way it's written, it, it sounds like a cisgendered white male wrote it, but anyway, that's besides the point. It's an anonymously written pornographic novel originally published by William Lassenby in 1884. If you remember, um, The Boudoir, a magazine of scandal, was also published originally by William Lassenby. So the excitable tales depicts a variety of sexual activities. Oh my. And it's kind of written in the style of a memoir. And the protagonist of the excitable tales is Mr. Clinton. So I'm going to briefly read chapter one, not all of it, but it does talk about his first experience. We're not going to read about his first experience, but just to get an idea of who Mr. Clinton was or is, and also to get familiar with his kind of writing style. Chapter one. A first experience. 
Those of my readers who peruse the following pages and expect to find a pretty tale of surpassing interest, embellished with all the spice which fiction can suggest, and a clever pen supply, will be egregiously mistaken, and had better close the volume at once. I am a plain matter-of-fact man, and relate only that which is strictly true, so that no matter how singular some of my statements may appear to those who have never passed through a similar experience, Excuse me, sir, I think the majority have not had a similar experience. The avouchement that it is a compendium of pure fact may serve to increase the zest with which I hope it may be read. Oh my, sir, the way that you write is very rich. I was born some fifty years ago, in the little town of H, about seven miles from the sea, and was educated at the grammar school, an old foundation institute, almost as old as the town itself. Up to the age of sixteen, I had remained in perfect ignorance of all those little matters which careful parents are so anxious to conceal from their children, nor, indeed, should I have then have had my mind enlarged had it not been for the playful instincts of my mother's housemaid, Emma, a strapping but comely wrench of nineteen, who, confined to the house all the week and only allowed out for a few hours on Sunday, could find no vent for those passionate impulses which a well-fed, well-blooded girl of her years is bound to be subject to occasionally, and more especially after the menstrual period. All right, so that's chapter one, and we got familiar with his writing style, and also it continues to talk about his sexual experience, uh, experience that he had with Emma. So there you go, that's chapter one. Let's move on to the juicy, juicy bit. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. A disappointed wife's first taste of bliss. The effect was really magical, for her conversation, here thereto, so constrained, became gay and lively, and as this vivacity added to her other charms, I grew more and more enamored of her. What capital oysters these are, she said, swallowing her ninth native. Yes, I said, in your Cheshire home, you would find it difficult to procure such real beauties. We should indeed, she replied. And for the matter of that, it is perhaps better that shellfish are so scarce with us, and she heaved another sigh. This beautiful woman is decidedly a conundrum, I thought, but determined to probe the puzzle, I inquired the meaning of her last remark. She blushed and simpered, then fixing her eyes on her plate said, I have always understood that shellfish are exciting and stimulate the passions. That is perfectly correct, I retorted and therefore all the more reason why a married lady should patronize them. She sighed again, and then, at last, I guessed the reason. Fool that I was not to have divined it before this time. Hope now was succeeded by certainty. After disposing of some chicken and another glass of champagne, she sank back into the armchair and murmured, How long do you think that my brother's consultation is likely to last? Pray heaven, I said fervently, that it may last all the night through. Why do you say that, Mr. Clinton? Does anybody else feel a little weird when I say Mr. Clinton? <laughs> because to see you and to listen to your voice is ravishing delight, which to dispel would seem to me the precursor of death. And I flung myself upon my knees before her, and seizing her hand, pressed it to my lips and covered it with burning kisses. She gently tried to withdraw it, and pointing to her wedding ring, said, Dear Mr. Clinton, I am a wife. Have pity on me. I am but a weak woman, and... But I caught her in my arms, and stifled the rest of the sentence with a long and 
ardent embrace, which, repulsed at first, was at length returned. Two seconds afterwards, my finger had softly insinuated itself into her willing cunt, and, as it encountered the clitoris, I found that it was as stiff as my own penis, which was now at the bursting point. Oh, Mr. Clinton, for God's sake forbear! If my brother should come in, there would be blood spilled. I should be lost. Fear nothing, my darling, I said, rubbing her vagina with the point of my finger and feeling the beginning of the pearly trickle exuding all over my hand. Come this way, and leading her ladyship by the hand, never, however, leaving hold of her sweet cunt the while, I placed her on her own brother's bed, and, oh, how can I write further, since to say that she was superb is but faintly to describe the joy I felt as straightening my throbbing prick, I gently slipped it into her. She gave one loud sigh, then lifted her strong country arse so that I plunged in up to the hilt. At each thrust I gave her ladyship, she responded with a promptitude which showed how fresh and spunky her vigorous constitution was. Go on, my own precious, she whispered, as I put my tongue into her panting, hot mouth. Faster, for Christ's sakes, faster! And, as she said the words, I shot into her a discharge which must have clean emptied my cods, for although Fanny still faintly struggled to elicit some more, the last lingering spark of vitality appeared to have flown from me. I did not seem to have enough the strength left to take it out, but lay there on her rounded breasts, for she had undone her clothes before commencing, supine and nerveless. Do try again, love, she murmured, toying with my hair. You will never guess, dear Mr. Clinton, what this has been to me. My old husband never did such a thing. He always uses a beastly machine, shaped like that which is in me now, but made of gutta percha and filled with warm oil and milk. You mean a dildo, dear? I have never heard its name, said Fanny. But it is nothing near so nice as this dear sweet thing of yours. Ugh, I never knew what real happiness was before. Could you manage it once more? And again her ladyship wriggled her bottom. Well, 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 Miss Fanny. In my waistcoat pocket, I had a petite flask of Pinero. I took this out and removing the stopper, drank about half a teaspoonful. The result was electrical. Drawing my prick nearly out of my lady's passage, I found it swelling again. And just giving the potent charm time to work, I softly began once more. It may almost seem romantic, but I can assure my readers that the second fuck was more enjoyable than the first. I must have lost the meaning of romantic in all honesty, but all right, Mr. Clinton. For having made coition a long study, I have always found that, given a cool brain, I can get more pleasure out of a slow connection than a gallopade, where the excitement gets the business over before you can absolutely realize the details. I revel in slow friction, gradually warming up to fever heat. We both seem to be so au courant of each other's little ways and modes of action, as though we had mutually performed the Fandango de Pocum for years, instead of only a few short minutes. Presently, to vary the bliss and to give her ladyship a few wrinkles, I suggested her mounting me a la St. George. But she begged of me not to take it out, and on my assuring her that was by no means a necessary concomitant, she agreed. 
I have always been distinguished at being particularly au fait with the St. George, so I managed to roll over very gradually, first one leg and then the other, till I had got Fanny fairly planted on top of me, but I had gauged her ladyship's cunt power at too low an estimate, for she no sooner found herself mistress of the situation than she took in the position at a glance and ravished me with such terrible lunges that I fairly cried, A GO! But nothing daunted, Fanny held on, and I stood no more chance of getting my poor used-up torch out of her vagina than if it had been wedged into a vice. At last, I felt the hot crane de la creme pouring down over my balls, and with the last despairing gasp of mingled pleasure and regret to think she could hold out no longer, Fanny once more sank into my arms, about as thoroughly spent as a woman should be, who has been most damnably twice fucked in a quarter of an hour. Hastily putting on her things and making herself ship-shape, she drove with me to the hotel, where her boxes had arrived safely, and in the morning I informed her brother, as I had previously arranged with Fanny, that she had sent a messenger to his chambers overnight, saying where she was to be found. I also told him how I had excused him in a return message by the hotel porter, and his gratitude to me knew no bounds. I deemed it prudent not to see her ladyship during her stay in town, though she sent me three pressing letters, but I feared we should be bowled out and wrote her so. Twelve months after this, I heard she had separated from her husband, having presented him nine months from the blissful evening with a son and heir, which the old man, not believing in miracles, could scarcely altogether credit the dildo with. My, my. Chapter 19. Concerning 69, or the magic influence of the tongue. The gamahatching process should only be employed as a preliminary and never should be permitted to go to the extent of more than starting the tap. No woman living is able to withstand a moist and well-trained tongue. Even those in whom desire has long been dead have been known to shriek for the relief only an erect penis can afford. Jack Wilton, the greatest essayist on cunt in an analytical form, who ever lived, goes further and even says, a judicious tongue can galvanize into life a female corpse. <laughs> this, of course, I do not admit, but there is a well-authenticated instance of a Somersetshire farmer's wife who had fallen into a trance and was believed by all her neighbors to be dead, being recalled to life simply through the husband giving her fanny one last loving lick. <clears throat> It is astonishing how prevalent the habit of gamaching has become in England, and I would, while touching on it, maintain that there is nothing unnatural in it. A tongue, soft and fleshy, fits in the vagina as though made for it, and though it can only tintillate the clitoris, it serves the useful office of a vent courier to the prick. The proof, if proof were wanting, that there is a distinct physical sympathy between the latter and the tongue, is that in the case of syphilis, the tongue is affected almost as soon as the penis shows signs of having made a mistake. The proof again of it being natural to animal life is the fact that if one carefully observes the collection in the zoo, it will be seen that when the beasts are in dalliance with one another, the male invariably licks over the vagina of the female before proceeding to business. Question, sir, how much time did you spend at the zoo? 
This is my own observation, but if my readers doubt the statement, a run up to Regent's Park and a few hours in front of the cages will generally corroborate it. I think to watch a man gamaching a woman is more exciting than to see her being absolutely poked. I remember staying on one occasion at a hotel in Paddington where a very pretty chambermaid showed me my room. I had not extinguished my candle more than five minutes before I heard a woman's voice in the next room. Are you going to sit up reading all night? I couldn't for the life of me understand this and thought the wall must be very thin, but it arose from the fact that some distance of the oaken partition, there was a hole caused through a good-sized knot in the wood falling out, and although this hole had a coat hanging in front of it, I very speedily discovered it. It did not take me very long to remove the coat, and I saw the welcome light gleam through. Then, standing on a chair, I applied my eye to the hole, and saw a man leisurely undressing, and a lady-like woman, about thirty, with a splendid head of hair, lying quietly in bed, awaiting him. Now, I thought, there is going to be some fun when a slight knock at my own door caused me to get down and open it. A telegram came for you two hours ago, sir, and they forgot to give it to you at the desk. One moment, my girl, I said, hastily slipping on my trousers and lighting my candle. The chambermaid was on the point of bolting. Don't go, my girl, I said. There may be an answer to this. Wait until I read it and listen. Then, lowering my voice to a significant whisper, if you want to see a sight that will interest and amuse you, Get on that chair and peep through the hole. I dare not, sir. I should lose my situation if anyone were to know I was in a gentleman's bedroom. I'll swear I won't harm you, I said, and really didn't intend to, for although the girl was a perfect little beauty, only sixteen and a half, I had done a long railway journey that day and felt knocked up. The girl hesitated for a moment, but as sincerity was prominent in the tones of my voice and she was burning with curiosity to see what was going on, she quietly stepped into the room, and I helped her on to the chair. Stay, I whispered. The candle must be extinguished, or they may see you, if they put theirs out. So, I placed the room in darkness, and there was the light streaming through the hole. Mary, for such the sobrette called herself, immediately peeped. For at least ten seconds, she never stirred. Then, getting another chair, I placed it by the side of Mary's and stood on it, with one arm around her waist. What was going on in the next room, I could only guess by the palpitation of Mary's heart. At last I said, May I peep, my dear? Oh, sir, wait a moment. I never saw such a thing in my life. Do wait a moment. Certainly, my angel, if you wish it, I said. Then, taking her hand, which was trembling all over, I gently allowed it to rest on my prick, over which by this time I had lost complete control. She clutched it wildly and passed her hand all around the balls, then pulled the skin back and so proved to me in less than three seconds that her exclamation just now might be a little bit qualified. Oh, sir, she said at length as I passed my hands up her petticoats and found her quim quite damp with excitement. I shall be missed downstairs. I must be going, but I should like to see the end of this. You shall feel the end of this, I said, and that's much more to the purpose. So helping her down, I lifted her neatly on my bed and planted it with such force that she cried out with pain. But whenever I have a new thing in cunts, I am always perfectly reckless of consequences, and so I gave no heed to her ejaculations, but fucked her to the bitter end. This motherfucker! Personally, I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I questioned very much whether she did. 
as the next morning she came to see me in the most disconsolate manner and said she was afraid she would have to go to the hospital as I had completely split her cunt. But a tenor soon squared that, and I would remark here that I have introduced this incident merely to show that the sight of a woman being gamached is far more exciting than witnessing an ordinary fuck. No, 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 sir. What you've introduced here is that you're a motherfucking cunt. Well, well, well. We have come to the end of this chapter. I decided to split this episode... I don't even know why I chose the word split at this point. But anyway, for lack of a better word, I will use split. I have decided to split this episode into two parts. So tune in on Saturday to listen to the last two chapters of Radiana or Excitable Tales. I'm not going to lie, the last two chapters of Radiana is even more obscene than what I just read. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Drunk and Smutty Christmas. I hope you have a lovely rest of the evening, and whatever you get up to, remember to stay safe. You will hear from me on Saturday, where we'll continue with Mr. Clinton's sexcapades. Take care of each other and yourselves. Bye!